Would you open up your Bible to the book of Luke, chapter 6, and can you continue to pray this week? There are a couple of things coming up. We have our mission one day that is coming up the last Sunday of October, and I want to remind you of that. Again, our Wednesday morning prayer will go on. Wednesday night services will go on, and so I just want to remind you of those things. Luke, chapter 6. Many of you, if you were to turn to the companion chapter of this event, would go to Matthew chapter 5, but we're going to be in Luke chapter 6. And before I kind of set this up, I want to make a few statements, and I just want to know if you agree with these statements. First of all, the Bible is the Word of God. Thank you. I agree with that. Every word of the original Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic were inspired by the Holy Spirit as he carried along the men who recorded those words. Would you agree with that? I believe in the Word of God. All 66 books, 39 in the Old, 27 in the New, spread out through 1,189 chapters, 31,164 verses, depending on which translation you're looking at, give or take a couple. Over 40 authors who were shepherds, farmers, tent makers, physicians, fishermen, priests, philosophers, and even kings. And despite these differences, in occupation, in the more than 1,500 years that span the writing, the Bible is an extremely cohesive and unified book. Would you say amen to that? Did you know that today the Bible has been translated into well over 2,000 written languages? But I will tell you there is a close second. It's Shakespeare. He has been translated into 50 languages. Over 2,000 written languages and hundreds and hundreds of vocal languages that have still not yet been written down. There's somewhere in the neighborhood, I believe, uh, if Wycliffe is right, somewhere in the neighborhood of like six or 700 more languages yet to write the Bible in, maybe more than that. But did you know that the Bible is still the best-selling book in the world today? Every year it's the best-selling book. They just don't post it on the New York Times bestseller. But how many of you know they should? Did you know that it only takes like 5,000 books to make it on the New York Times bestseller list? And yet hundreds of thousands of copies of the Bible are sold every year. Now, this is what I want you to do. I want you now not to just agree. I want you to get your Bible, and if you've been reduced to a phone or an iPad or something like that, get that too. But I want you to hold up a Bible right now. And this is what I want you to say and repeat after me. Say, this is my Bible. It is, it, excuse me. (laughs) I am what it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. Today I will be taught the word of God. So I boldly confess, my mind is alert, my heart is receptive, I will never be the same. I'm about to receive the incorruptible, indestructible, ever-living seed 
of the Word of God. I will never be the same. Never, never, never. I will never be the same. In Jesus' name, amen. Or as my professor says, my Bible is my all-sufficient guide to faith and conduct. As Bible college students, he made us write that in the front of our Bible, and I wasn't even sure if that was holy to write something in the front of my Bible until that day. But it is my all-sufficient guide to faith and conduct. Now, in past years, there were versions of the Bible, and some of you might remember this. They were called red-letter editions. Anybody remember those? Red-letter editions. These versions highlighted the words of Jesus in red. Because of the electronic uh, editions and cheaper ones like this one right here, those red letters are somehow disappearing. I'm not here to make a case on whether that should be or not be. But I do know this. Early on in ministry, I heard this advice, some of the best advice I've ever been given. They said when you're preaching, if you ever lack sermon material, then open your Bible, read the red, and pray for the power. Because <laughs> you cannot go wrong with preaching from the red letters of the Word of God. Why? Because even though all of those authors that we talked about earlier were carried along by the Holy Spirit, there was something powerful about Jesus himself quoting or speaking in the Word of God. I mean, you can't go wrong with the Word of God, but there's something about Jesus' very own words. In John chapter 6, verse 63, Jesus said, The words I have spoken to you, they are spirit and they are life. Would you say that with me? Say, they are spirit and they are life. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active. Ephesians 6 says that the word of the Lord is the sword of the spirit. They're just repeating what Jesus said. Life is living. It's active. Something is happening. And when you open the word of God and when you begin to read it and when you begin to read the words of Jesus, something should happen in your spirit. If you can read the words of Jesus and stay dead, there's a problem with you. These are not dead words. They are living words. When we read and absorb the words of Jesus, we are literally encountering the spirit of the living God. Okay, now I'll take it. Today we're going to begin to delve into these words of life. And the first place I want to do this is in Luke chapter 6. How many of you have ever heard of the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount? Well, this is the Sermon on the Plain. Now, I'm not going to go into because scholars go all over the place with that, whether it was two sermons or what. But this, according to scholars in Luke chapter 6, is the Sermon on the Plain. And do you want to know why? Because the Bible says that in a plain, flat place, Jesus began to speak. So that's the Sermon on the Plain. And as he begins to preach, there are things that we want to see what Jesus says and understand what Jesus says. Now, I want to read out of the, the Passion Translation. And for those of you that have electronic Bibles, you're going to have that advantage over some of the others. And I want you to hear, and I believe they're going to have them up on the screen. But I want you to hear 
what, how the Passion Translation reads. Oh, that is so small. Sorry about that. So maybe you just have to listen. The reason I want to read it out of the Passion Translation today is this. Is sometimes you've read a story in the King James, in the NIV, in the NASB, in the, you know, ESV, whatever version you love the best. Amplified is one of my favorites. But you read it, and sometimes because you're so familiar with a story, you just read right over it, and you miss so much. So hear it out of the Passion Translation. It says, Jesus and his apostles came down from the hillside to a level field. There it is. Where a large number of his disciples waited, along with a massive crowd of people who gathered from all over Judea, Jerusalem, and the coastal district of Tyre and Sidon. They had all come to listen to the manifestation so that they could be healed of their diseases and be set free from the demonic powers that tormented them. The entire crowd eagerly tried to come near Jesus so they could touch him and be healed because a tangible supernatural power emanated from him, healing all who came close to him. First of all, I want you to observe something, that there are three groups of people. Look at your neighbor and say three. Three groups of people. Do you know who they are? See if you can name them before I do. First of all, the apostles. They're whom Jesus had just chosen out of the large group of disciples. And he appointed them and anointed them apostles. So we've got the 12. Number two, disciples. These were followers of Jesus. Sometimes a group of 72 at any time were following Jesus with him from place to place. And we're not sure exactly, just as a large group of disciples, it could have been in the hundreds. But we know that there was a group of disciples, those who were following Jesus, even though they weren't appointed apostles. They didn't get offended by that. And then the third group of people, you know who the third group was? The crowd, that's exactly right. These were those that were looking for healing or deliverance or a blessing or favor or a touch from Jesus. Now, we talked in, in the past few weeks about moving from being a believer, which is a crowd mentality, to a disciple. Maybe sometime in the future we'll talk about moving from a disciple to an apostle. Mm, I, think that's, I think that's we need to just note that, and I'll come back to that. Now, the Beatitudes, how many of you know that Beatitudes, the basic form of the word is basically blessing? Say blessing. But what we're about to find is that not only does Jesus proclaim four blessings here, but he also proclaims four warnings or four woes. Like, whoa, we need to check that out, right? We need to listen to this and and see what it says. But did you know that the Beatitudes are found all throughout the Old and New Testament? There are dozens and dozens of Beatitudes throughout the Old and New Testament. Take, for example, the beatitude of Elizabeth when she encounters Mary through the Holy Spirit. She says in Luke 1, 45, great favor is upon you for you have believed every word spoken to you from the Lord. Great favor is upon you for you have believed every word spoken to you from the Lord. Beatitudes are more than mere blessings. As if someone sneezes and we rattle off what? God bless you, right? This this is not what Jesus was saying. It's not what the Beatitudes are in the Word of God. 
Beatitudes are the actual declaration of a thing. When Jesus was pronouncing these blessings, he was declaring over these people these things, those that would receive them. So in other words, let me take that back and say this. When Jesus speaks something, when Jesus speaks a blessing or a favor in in red, we have a choice. We can receive it or we can reject it. This morning, I pray that we receive it. The people in the crowd had a choice. They could receive it or reject it. But guess what? Jesus wasn't speaking these to the crowds. It says he turned to his disciples and he began to speak. So here there's literally thousands, upwards of 20,000 people gathering on this massive plane ready to listen to Jesus. And he says to his disciples, I'll get to them in a minute, but there's a few things I want to talk to you about. And then he begins to go into this. So look at verse 20 now of Luke chapter 6, and we're going to settle in here for a few minutes. It says, looking intently at his followers, Jesus began his sermon. How enriched you become when you are poor, for you will experience the reality of God's kingdom realm. How filled you become when you are consumed with hunger and desire, for you will be completely satisfied. How content you become when you weep with complete brokenness, for you will laugh with unrestrained joy. How favored you become when you are hated, excommunicated, or slandered, or when your name is spoken of as evil because of your love for me, the Son of Man. I promise you that as you experience these things, you will celebrate and dance with overflowing joy. And the heavenly will reward of your faith, or excuse me, and the heavenly reward of your faith will be abundant because you are being treated the same way as your forefathers, the prophets. Amen to the word of God. Now, when you look at Beatitudes, there are a couple of different forms. This form that Jesus is speaking is what's called eschatological. I'll get it out. You know the word eschatology, the study of future things. So in other words, it's like it's like a future beatitude. It it evaluates the present circumstances in light of the future and promises end time salvation. In substance, it it looks at history as nearing its end and announces the reversal of conditions. That's what this kind of beatitude does. Jesus pronounces and declares a thing. He says, this is your present circumstance, but this is where it's going to lead to. Can somebody say amen? Do you know if you're going through something, the best advice I can give you is keep going? If you're going through something, keep going, (laughs) because this too shall pass. You see, there's a promise at the end of whatever we're walking through in this earth. I just want to remind you today that we are strangers and pilgrims in this earth. The Bible calls us aliens. You young teens in here, aliens. You can tell your friends I'm an alien, right? Because why? Because you are an alien. You're a stranger. You're a foreigner in this earth. You're just passing through. But Jesus gives us some encouragement as we pass through. He gives us some direction as we pass through. Now, remember. He's talking to 
disciples and apostles. So, so that would be most of us in this room, I believe. His focus is to encourage us and, and to say, you're going to make it. So let's, let's talk about what else Jesus said. Look at verse 24. So he does his blessing. He does his pronouncement. He does his declaration. Then without missing a beat, he says, but what sorrows await those of you who are rich in this life only? For you have already received all the comfort you'll ever get. What sorrows await those of you who are complete and content with yourselves? For hunger and emptiness will come to you. Remember, who's he speaking to? Disciples. What sorrows await those of you who laugh now, having received all your joy in this life only? For grief and wailing will come to you. What sorrows await those of you who are always honored and lauded by others? For that's how your forefathers treated every other false prophet. Can I tell you, this is my belief. You can, I, I, don't, I don't, can't substantiate it. But I think there might have been a couple of Pharisees hanging out on the fringes right now. And Jesus eyes them. And he begins to give these woes. He begins to give these warnings, yes, to his disciples, but maybe to a couple of Pharisees who are still trying to figure out who is this guy that can, can have 20,000 people show up when he announces a sermon. I mean, we announce a sermon and 15 people show up, but he announces a sermon and 20,000 people show up. What's the deal with this guy? So they haven't yet started persecuting him. They haven't yet. They, he's just coming on the scene at this point. And I believe Jesus begins to kind of cast these warnings and woes out there. Now, I want to talk about these warnings and woes together because that's really the way Jesus meant them. I want to look at verses, or excuse me, I want to look first of all at poor versus rich. Poor versus rich. Go back up to verse uh, 20. What does he say? How enriched you become when you are poor, for you will experience the reality of God's kingdom realm. But what sorrows await for those of you who are rich in this life only, for you have already received all the comfort you'll ever get. Now, I need you to do something for me right here and right now. I need you, I know this is going to be tough, but I need you to take off your capitalistic mindset for a moment and set it aside. And I need you to place back in that a kingdom mindset. I know it's hard because we don't live in England, but, but I want you to replace it with a, with a kingdom mindset as if we were being ruled by a king because that's what these people understood, didn't they? And he was saying the poor in a kingdom are looked after by that king and his kingdom. If you're poor in a kingdom, who's going to be watching out for you? If you've got a good king, it's going to be the king. And he's going to make sure that the poor and the king, I know this messes with your capitalistic mindset. Just let it go for a minute. The Bible was written to an Eastern audience, and we've got to sometimes put ourselves aside so that we can capture the understanding. He's saying, and I know that some of you want to say, well, well, doesn't Matthew say poor in spirit? Yes, it does, and we're going to get to that. But he was speaking to the minds. He was beginning to help them understand. Listen, even if you poor fishermen, 
I know that I know that television evangelists, all of them, not all of them. I know that some of them want to make you think that Peter was some kingpin fisherman and he owned a fleet of boats. Forget that. He was a Galilean. He was a country folk. He wasn't some rich. I mean, I'm not saying some of the disciples weren't rich. Some of the apostles, Judas was. Oh, yeah, Judas was. Oh, yeah, he betrayed Jesus. But anyway, so, but some of them were poor. Some of them understood this. Some of them understood and felt this, and they were struggling to make it paycheck to paycheck or fish to fish, whatever you want to say. If the, if the farm was doing good, they were doing good, but if they had a bad storm, then they did bad. It was up and down. And he's looking at them and he's saying to them, I know that all these Romans look really rich, but if you're poor in my kingdom, I'm going to take care of you. Ooh, that should have been good for somebody right there. When we are poor in spirit, we recognize that all we have, all of our supply, all of our resource comes from the king and his kingdom. I have nothing without him. Some of you were just sweating right there. You thought I was going to make a sell-all and, and give it away and be poor. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying we've got, it's a recognition of where the resource is. It's the king. When we're part of his kingdom, he takes care of his kids. He takes care of his people. And Jesus said we can't come to him as a, as a rich person would come and walk into a kingdom. We've, we've got to come and we've got to recognize, God, you are greater than all. By the way, Bill Gates is a pauper compared to God. William Bennett owns nothing compared to what God owns. When we recognize that we are poor in his sight, he makes us, what, people? Rich. Jesus said it would be hard for the rich to enter in the kingdom of God, he told the disciples later. But the clue for how the rich can enter the kingdom of God is in verse 24. Sorrows await for those who are rich in this life only. You see, you can be rich in this life as long as you're rich in the kingdom as well. Come on, somebody. I mean, I don't know all the rich Christians in the world, I promise you. I, I don't really know too many at all. But I do know there's one family that's incredibly rich, the Green family. Own Hobby Lobby, Mardell, what's the other one, Hemispheres, a few other conglomerations, the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., the largest Bible collection in the entire world is owned by the Greens. I mean, they own a lot. He started in his garage. I haven't read his book, but I remember it was a very sultry palm of a, 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 a sultry sum of like a hundred bucks or something. That he started with his first little craft stuff. And from there, he literally is now a multi-billionaire. What does he what does he do with his money? He gives so much away. I know that at one report I heard that somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 million goes to missions and mission endeavors throughout the world every year. Just through them. How many would like to give 150 mil next year? Come on, somebody. Yes, amen. But there is something I know. I've heard enough. I've read enough. I've seen enough from them to know that they're not just rich in this present world. They are rich in the kingdom as well. 
They are willing to give their lives. So do you understand what I'm saying? We've, if we want to experience the, the kingdom of God, Jesus says that we've got to come to him recognizing who our source is and recognizing that we can tap in to the kingdom of God realm now and for eternity. Somebody say eternity. Secondly, not just rich versus poor, but hungry versus filled, Jesus says. How many of you know that Jesus is the bread of life? He says, come, come, anyone who's thirsty, anyone who's hungry, and drink and eat of me. He said to his disciples, he said, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And some people thought he was crazy, but they got it. They finally got it after he was raised from the dead. They finally understood it. Jesus is the bread of life, and we cannot come to him full of ourselves. Can you imagine being called today, ring, ring on your phone? I don't know why I did that. I guess that's from a long time ago. Or ring, ring from your phone, right? And can you imagine someone saying, this is the White House calling, hold on, you'll be patched through in a moment. And you go, who's doing this, right? That's what most of us would think. And then the phone call goes through. And a man gets on the phone, and Joe, I should have had you do an impression because I can't do it. But, but the other person on the other end says, uh, uh, hey, hey, how's it going? I, I'd really like for you to come to my house uh, tomorrow for a big old banquet. Uh, and I've invited you and a few other people, and you just come on down. That's a horrible translation. President Trump calls you and tells you to come down to the White House. And then you realize it's real. How many of you would get on a plane tonight to be at the banqueting table of the president tomorrow. Come on, anybody? Oh, man, some of you are so, oh, you're like, oh, I don't know if I like this or that. I would be there. If Obama would have called me, I would have been there. I might have prophesied a little bit to him, but I would have been there to sit at the table of the president and eat of the food that he eats. I would have been there. But how many of you know if the banquet's at 6, you're like a little anxious. You're ready to go. How many of you would go down to the local Golden Corral and eat all you could at the all-you-can-eat buffet for $5.99? Are you out of your mind, right? An hour before going to the president's table. How many of you would do that? Absolutely not. How am I going to go to the king's table? I'm going to go hungry. Because I know there's good stuff there, amen? You don't come to the king's table full of junk food and expect to be satisfied by him. Ooh, that's good preaching right there. <laughs> if you come full of junk, you're going to leave even the king's table empty and unsatisfied. Too many people, he's speaking to disciples, he's speaking to us. He's saying, don't come to my table full, come hungry. When's the last time you could honestly say you were hungry for God? When was the last time you could honestly say, oh, I got to get in the word. I, I need the word. I'm so hungry. When was the last time you said, God, I just got to be in your presence. I, I need to be refreshed. Can I tell you, you're not offending God at all. That's the way he wants us. Jesus calls us to feast at his table. 
all of the things of this world can't satisfy like Jesus' table. I told Joseph this week, I said, I want to do a whole series on just the table of the Lord. There's so many tables in the Bible. And he tells us to come and feast. You know what I'm looking forward to when Jesus comes back? You probably already guessed it. When Jesus comes back, I don't know how long it's going to take, how many hours, maybe years. I'm not sure exactly when it's going to happen. I I know I, I, I like eschatology, but I don't know the exact moment. But I'm looking forward to that moment when Jesus says, ring, ring, it's dinner time. Come to the master's table. <laughs> it's going to be amazing. We've got to come hungry. And those who come filled with themselves will leave unsatisfied. Thirdly, Jesus talked about weeping versus joy. How many of you know weeping may endure for a night? But joy, come on, comes in the morning. Jesus wept. Shortest verse of the Bible. At Lazarus' funeral. But that wasn't the only place he wept. The Bible calls him, Isaiah called him a man acquainted with sorrows and grief. The Bible says that he wept over the city of Jerusalem. As he cried out for the souls that were in Jerusalem. He wasn't crying out over the buildings. He was crying out over the people in Jerusalem. He was crying for you and me, wept for you and me. Someone once said, you may soon forget those with whom you have laughed, but you will never forget those with whom you have wept. Wow. Laughter can be cheap sometimes. Have you noticed how much the world laughs? I mean, they have an entire television station devoted to laughter. Most of it is not laughter that I would want my children laughing at. Come on, somebody. There's nothing wrong with laughing. Jesus isn't saying that laughter is wrong. He created the emotion. He created the response to the emotion. But I wonder what happens when the world is laughing and then the lights go out and their head hits the pillow. Are they still laughing? You see, true joy, according to Jesus, endures beyond the moment of laughter. And this is what I take from Jesus. Disciples should be the happiest people on the planet. Disciples should be the most joyful people on the planet. We should have joy flowing out of our lives. And he said, what sorrow awaits those of you who laugh now, having received all your joy in this life only, for grief and wailing will come to you. Don't tell me hell is going to be a quiet place. Hell is going to be a place of wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth. But Jesus said, those who endure through now, their joy will come in the morning. In this life and in the one to come. Can somebody say amen? amen? Lastly, the fourth area that Jesus talked about on the Sermon on the Plain in the Beatitudes was being hated versus being honored. He said when you're hated, slandered, excommunicated, that means to be thrown out because of our love for Jesus, he said, I will favor you. Be careful. Listen to your pastor. Be careful when people are constantly singing your praises. Anybody ever found this to be true? They are many times the ones 
who will abandon you at a moment's notice. I'm just going to say it. I, I, I wrote it down because I, I just kind of wrestled with it. I said, Lord, can I, can I, should I? Yes, I will. This is a pastoral confession. Are you ready? You want to know what pastors think and why we have a whole month dedicated to pastor appreciation that nobody knows about? <laughs> that was what the radio said yesterday. I thought that was funny. You can laugh. It's okay. Here's a pastoral confession. When someone comes to our church once, And then starts telling me how this is the best church on the planet. That was the most amazing sermon I've ever heard. I'm going to be here every time the doors are open. After just the first time, I'm just kind of wait for a second. I used to be like, oh, thanks. Now I'm just like keeping quiet and just waiting for the second part. And then the second part comes. Because the last church I was at was the worst church I've ever been to. It had the worst people I've ever had. And the worst pastor because he had the worst sermons and he didn't care about me. Out of the last 14 churches I've been to. And you know what I do? I smile. I say, God bless you. Maybe I'll see you in heaven. Hallelujah. It's true. I'm telling you, as a young pastor, I used to be like, wow, that was amazing. They think they were the best. And then I just realized, no, they just got something else in the past. It's just waiting to come up. It's okay. You can tell me I preach good every once in a while, but I've got somebody in the group that tells me all the time that I don't. So it it just keeps us on a level playing field. (laughs) I love it. It's not my wife. My wife tells me I do good. Anyway. Here's the question. Do we seek the approval of men or the approval of God? That's really where it boils down to. I believe what Jesus is saying here, part of what Jesus is saying, is that even if you are excommunicated, cast out of your family, whatever, even if you do that, I will approve of you. I see you. That's what Joseph tells. He's told, I think, every foster kid we've ever had, any kid, he's like, we see you. We hear you. Lately, there's been a little child in our house. You know about her. And uh, she's finally gotten vocal. <laughs> really, really vocal. Really loud at the table. Demanding, I want my peaches. Only she doesn't say it because she can't say it yet. But she just like, ah. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Any parents in the house? And Joseph says, we see you and we hear you. (laughs) You are heard. Do you know what? We can whine and complain all day long, but God sees us. He hears us. He knows where we're at. You don't need a bar like in Cheers because he's known your name before you were even made in your mother's womb. He knows your name. He knows where you are. You know, that's why I love prophecy so much. The prophetic is so, so good. God is so good that he created this. Just this week, we had lunch with a couple, actually with a family that I'd never met before in my life. I still haven't looked him up on his website. I don't know. He's supposed to be some really, you know, well-known person. I just, I don't know him. Never met him. But Joseph met him and his family, and they said, we'd love to meet your parents. And so we went out to lunch on Wednesday. 
And at the end of the lunch, he just said, I really feel like the Lord is speaking something. And we got out the phone and we recorded, and he began to prophesy things. Things there's no way he knows about. No way he knows us. And you know what? It's not about him. It's about God. It's just God saying, I still see you. I know where you're at. And I know where you're going. And I've got you. I want you to look at your neighbor right now. Go ahead, look at him. Look at somebody right now. Find somebody's eyes. Lock eyes with them. And say, God sees you. God knows you. He knows where you're at. And he knows where you're going. Amen. Do you want that from men and women? I want it from God. Luke 6.23 says, I promise you that as you experience these things, you will celebrate and dance with overflowing joy. Some of you, I know you don't like to dance and you get kind of weirded out when we start dancing, but can I tell you, even you're going to dance. There's a day coming when even you're going to dance. And you thought, I can't dance. Well, you're going to be made to dance because God's going to give you the dance. Because it's just going to flow out of you because you can't contain yourself. And that dance may not look pretty to anybody else, but it's going to be beautiful to God. Like a little child holding their arms up to Papa going, Papa, pick me up. Papa, pick me up. (laughs) Come on. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be the dance of your father. And then he says, in the heavenly reward of your faith will be abundant. Oh, just say that. Say, my reward is abundant because you're being treated the same way as your forefathers, the prophets. Jesus said that the disciples will be counted with the prophets of old, and that's to be honored by God. Do you know what they did to the prophets of old? They made fun of Elisha's baldness. Oh, that hurts. That one hurts. Some of you don't understand that. You're like, what was the big deal? I understand. They rejected the prophet Moses' leadership. They replaced Samuel with a new model. They made Jeremiah the weeping prophet. Zacharias was murdered between the porch and the altar of the temple. And Jesus says to his disciples, your reward is going to be the same as the prophets. And if I were to know those like those disciples knew those, I'd be thinking, Lord, that's my reward. But how many of you know the reward isn't always here? Oh, we get rewarded here. I believe that. But the reward is in heaven. The apostles didn't know it at the time, but they would follow the same path of martyrdom as these saints of old. But the promise is overflowing joy. Now, I want to finish out, and I really do. We're going to make some declarations. But I I want you to see this. What I'm about to read to you out of Scripture, starting in verse 27, if you were to take that and just read it, you would know most of these verses. But I want you to see that these verses are in the same context of what we just talked about. Promising the disciples you're going to go through some stuff, but at the end you're going to be rewarded. So listen to this, verse 27 of Luke 6. But if you will listen, I say to you, Jesus said, love your enemies and do something wonderful for them in return for their hatred. 
When someone curses you, bless that person in return. When you are mistreated and harassed by others, accept it as your mission to pray for them. I love that. To those who despise you, continue to serve them and minister to them. If someone takes away your coat, give him as a gift your shirt as well. When someone comes to beg from you, give to that person what you have. When things are wrongly taken from you, do not demand that they be given back. However you wish to be treated by others is how you should treat everyone else. What do we call that? Last one, the golden rule. And yet its context is in persecution, mistreatment, mishandling, offenses, for following Jesus. He says, even those who persecute you, how do you want to be treated? Think of those who are persecuting you and think, how would I want to be treated? And I'll treat you the same way. Amen? So, I want to declare a few things. So if you could stand up, please. We're going to declare, remember I told you at the beginning, a beatitude is not just a blessing like, oh, God bless you. No, a beatitude is a declaration. If I could say it in this way, it's a prophetic word of what's coming as you walk through where you are. Are you ready for that? So are you ready to declare these? I'm going to, I'm going to say it and then you repeat. We declare that we are rich in the kingdom of God. All our needs are met as we look to our provider, Jesus. We declare that we are filled at the banquet table of the Lord. We are content only in him as we feast in his presence. We declare that we are full of joy as we find pleasures forevermore. At the Father's right hand, where we are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. We declare that we are highly favored by Jesus. We look to him for our approval and our worth. Somebody say amen to that. Amen. Hallelujah. Do you believe that? I started this out saying... You can receive it or you can reject it. Say, I receive in Jesus' name. Can you lift your hands to Jesus right now? Jesus, we love you. We honor you and we praise you. God, we look to your word and we look to the things you said and we believe them, God. We receive them as you written them, God. We receive them as you declared them. God, even as if we were there 2,000 years ago sitting on that plane, God, we say with them, with those disciples and apostles that received it, God, we receive your words in the name of Jesus. God, help us to live them out. Help us to walk them out. Help us to love others even as you have loved us. Help us to treat others even as we want them to treat us. God, help us to love others through your love, through your forgiveness, through your grace, God. God, and we pray if there be anything in us that would draw us to those woes and those warnings, God. 
we come before you right now and ask for forgiveness. We ask that you would keep us from temptation. <laughs> Lord, you would deliver us from temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. God, we want to follow you and serve you. Can you just make your own declaration right now? Say, Jesus, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to live for you. I'm going to walk in the path that you have laid out for me. Even if it means going down a hard road, a thorny path, a rocky path, God, I will serve you all the days of my life. And as for me and my house, some of you need to make this declaration right now. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Do you know that includes your lineage? Some of you, I know you got kids out of the house, but it includes your lineage. Make that declaration. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, you and your whole household will be saved in the name of Jesus. Go ahead, pray for him. I know some of you just, God just brought somebody up that you're like, they're not living for him, though. Make that declaration over them right now. In Jesus' name, prodigals come home. In Jesus' name, prodigals come home. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The favor and the blessing of God will rest upon them. Hmm. Hmm. Susan, I may need your help on this. If you just sing a little louder. You are good, good. 